Welcome to the Bible for My Ordinary Life podcast. My name is Alicia Parker, and I'll be your host. Now, I live a pretty ordinary life, but I really enjoy studying and teaching the Bible. If you're interested in what the Bible really means and how it can be applied to your everyday, perhaps ordinary life, then this podcast is for you. You see, I believe the Bible is more than just a collection of interesting stories. It's God's communication to humankind. It's a revelation about who he is and how we fit into the story he is telling. Even if we feel like our personal story is a little bit ordinary. The Bible includes 66 individual books, but with a unifying theme, God desires a relationship with us. So let's open the pages of God's word together and discover what extraordinary truths he has for our lives. Hi friends, I hope you're ready for a great discussion today. Let's start off with a question I have for you. Have you ever worried that at the end of your life, you'd find out you didn't make it into heaven? When I was a child, my parents took me to church regularly. I was also in a private school for the first few years, so the idea of God, heaven, and hell have been familiar since my earliest memories. There was a short time in my early memories that I was worried I wouldn't go to heaven. I was about seven when I acknowledged Jesus as my savior and gave my life to him. But for the next few years, I still had a nagging doubt that somehow God knew about those Hershey kisses I snuck off the kitchen counter or the bad word that tumbled around in my head when I didn't mean it to. And maybe I could lose my salvation if I wasn't more careful. But by the time I was a young teenager, I had grown in my faith enough to rest confidently that nothing I did could ever reverse the promise of heaven. I entered a Christian college and met a group of friends that are still dear to me 20 years later. And one of those friends grew up in a faith tradition that taught you could be a sincere believer and still lose your salvation if at some point in your life you renounced your faith. I was stunned. I hadn't heard that kind of teaching before. So, like a good Christian, I just assumed she was wrong. <laughs> I just, kind of, because I did grow up thinking that whatever I was taught must be right. I fully trusted my mentors, pastors, teachers, and my inner circle of influencers. But as I've aged, while I still hold them in very high regard, I am much more open to listening to and considering different voices. So let's return to the question. Have you ever been worried about your eternal security? Maybe, like me, you come from a long history of knowledge about your faith and you are secure in the understanding you hold about this topic. Or perhaps this is an area you're a little fuzzy on and don't have a lot of information or teaching to back up what you think or feel is the right thing to believe. Now, I'm asking this question because we're going to examine a few verses in Ephesians today that are linked to the doctrine of eternal security. I want us to get to the different viewpoints on this and provide you with some arguments for both sides. Remember, we agreed that on this journey, there would be a lot of theology and doctrine in Ephesians, but I promised to not make it too heavy and to ensure that we had some good practical application for ourselves. You'll get both today, a little doctrine and a little application, I promise. So far, we've talked about the doctrine of election. We covered that in lesson two, which is episode 43 of this podcast. And I've given you some takeaways each week. In our previous time together, I challenged you to keep a record of ways to praise God for what he has done in your life. I hope that is something you are doing and that it's making a difference for you. 
And if you haven't started doing that yet, there's no time like the present. But I digress just a bit. My point is that today is similar. We're going to wade into some doctrine together and then come up with some practical applications for what we've learned. So far, we've studied the first 14 verses of Ephesians. This is a letter to a church in the first century located in the city of Ephesus, and the letter was intended to be read there first and then passed around to other churches for their instruction and encouragement as well. If you'll remember, we called that a circular letter. And also, we talked about the fact that verses 3 through 14 are one really long sentence in Greek, even though our English Bible breaks them up into several shorter sentences. I know we've already taken two podcasts to cover these verses, but I would like to read them again. We'll be landing on the last two verses today, which we've mentioned, but we didn't really cover in the previous episode together. As I read this, see if any phrase or word strikes you differently and be open to how God might use these words to speak to you today. I'll be reading today from the Net2 version found on Bible.org. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ. For he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He did this by predestining us to adoption as his legal heirs through Jesus Christ, according to the pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace that he has freely bestowed on us in his dearly loved son. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our offenses, according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He did this when he revealed to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ toward the administration of the fullness of all the times to head up all things in Christ, the things in heaven and the things on earth. In Christ, we too have been claimed as God's own possession since we were predestined according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first to set our hope in Christ, would be to the praise of his glory. And when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed in Christ, you were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit, who is the down payment of our inheritance, until the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. Okay, so this gigantic sentence starts out with blessings to God the Father. It references Jesus' work on the cross of redeeming us by his blood and then finishes with the Holy Spirit, who is a down payment of our inheritance. So I'm looking at these words, and with these words is, of course, punctuation, common to English. And I want to talk about a few nuances here. I like to share with you strategies I use to read and study the Bible. I call them composition clues because they are clues given to us as we read this composition. Today, we're going to focus on the composition clue of specific punctuation. Often, translators will use our English punctuation to help capture meaning and intention from the original language. In verse 13, there's a set of parentheses and a phrase set apart by two dashes. This choice of punctuation has a purpose. The sentence starts out with the words, When you heard the word of truth. And then in my version, there's a parenthesis around the next phrase, the gospel of your salvation. And then a dash and the phrase, 
when you believed in Christ, and then another dash and the phrase, you were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. Now, your printed version might use other punctuation like commas, but let's think about what clues these punctuation marks are giving us. Parentheses can be used to further explain a concept you just stated. So when Paul says they heard the word of truth, and that is followed by a parenthetical phrase, the gospel of your salvation, he is elaborating that the word of truth is the same thing as the gospel of their salvation. Then right after that phrase is another phrase marked with dashes. It says, when you believed in Christ. Okay, so Paul is triggering a memory. A memory of the time these church members heard the truth or the gospel and they believed. Now we see another phrase. You were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. The punctuation helps us see that this was an event. It's a specific time they heard and believed and were sealed with the Holy Spirit. But the sentence isn't over. Next, there's a set of commas, which function a lot like the parentheses above. After the words Holy Spirit, there's a comma and then the words who is the down payment of our inheritance. So the Holy Spirit can also be described as the down payment of our inheritance. All right, so I'm making a big deal about parentheses and dashes and commas because what these little punctuation marks indicate is that Paul is communicating that these events took place at the same time. These are such great composition clues for us. Paul's readers heard and believed and were sealed. Why is this important? Remember that question I started off with a few minutes ago? One of the reasons I didn't question my eternal security was because of passages like this. I believed that at the time of my salvation, I was sealed. Eternally secure, no matter what. And I was arrogant enough to think that I was always right whatever I believed. Now, I'm not saying I no longer believe this. I'm just saying that time has taught me that when people see things differently or believe different things, it's wise to listen and learn first and then decide if my original thinking is still what I ascribe to. It does seem pretty clear from this that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit, and that should give us confidence that our security should not be questioned. Plus, there are other passages that support this. Let's take a look at a few of those and build a case for why people believe you cannot lose your salvation, and then I promise we'll look at the counter-argument. Romans 8, verses 30 and 31 says this, And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? In these verses, we again see the idea of the doctrine of election. God predestines, chooses, calls, and then justifies. Now, for more on that doctrine, you can see episode 43. But the point here is, if God chooses us and predestines and nothing can be against us if God is for us, how could we argue that we could do something to lose our salvation and reverse what God has predestined? There is a similar teaching that came directly from Jesus while he was addressing the religious leaders of his time. 
In John 10, verses 28 and 30, he says this about his sheep, which are his disciples. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them from my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one can snatch them from my Father's hand. The Father and I are one. Jesus reinforces this idea that once we are his, we cannot be taken away. In this same gospel, John records Jesus saying, Now this is the will of the one who sent me, that I should not lose one person of every one he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, for everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him to have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Those verses are from John 6, verse 39 and 40. So everyone who looks to God's Son and believes in him will be raised up in the last day. There's never any teaching or indication that there could be a way to nullify this. Let's look at one more. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks or slaves or free, we are all made to drink of the one spirit. Believers in Jesus become part of one body. We are baptized spiritually into that body, grafted in. There isn't an indication that we can be removed from that body. So this should give us confidence that we cannot lose our salvation, right? But still, some people believe it's possible. So there must be a reason for that belief. Let's start out with a non-scriptural reason people might believe this. And perhaps it's something that might resonate with your experience. Have you ever known someone who professed to be a Christian but then turned away from the faith and either stopped living as if they believed or outright denied Christ as their Savior? I have. I have someone I love deeply that professed and lived as if a believer but has walked away from that lifestyle and now has no evidence of a relationship with Christ. It's troubling to me because I believe that this person had a salvation experience. But then I question that and wonder, was it real or was it just going through the motions? And what about pastors or Christian musicians or Christian authors who have professed salvation and even led others to Christ and been involved in incredible ministries and seemed so genuine and then later publicly denounced their faith? I've personally been rocked by some very well-known people I thought were believers who later said they weren't. And I can't help but think, if it was so real to you, how could you possibly deny it? My faith in and my relationship with God is so very real to me. Even when I'm discouraged or frustrated, I can't imagine saying it was all fake. It was nothing. I was mistaken. And yet people do. So were they never really saved? Or can you deny Christ after being saved? And then if so, what happens? So let's now take a look at a few scriptures that people point to as evidence that you can indeed deny Christ and lose your salvation after truly being saved. We'll start in John 15, verse 6, which says, If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown out like a branch and dries up, and such branches are gathered up and thrown into the fire and are burned up. Now, in season one of this podcast, I did an in-depth study on the Gospel of John. In episode 28, I talked through this verse and various ways to interpret it. It's pretty clear that Jesus is referring to branches attached to the vine. And he is the vine, so branches attached to him are the disciples. So can a disciple be cut off? 
Can a disciple be thrown out and burned up like branches? Or does the grammar here support the idea that it's not the disciple that's cut off and thrown out, but the works of that disciple? So maybe the disciple's still saved, but the heavenly rewards are diminished. And scholars are divided on this issue. Some use this passage to support that indeed you can lose your salvation, while others argue it's rewards that are lost, not salvation. Let's look at another passage. This time we'll flip to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews has several warning passages throughout it. And in this chapter, the author is trying to get his audience to mature in their spiritual understanding. Starting from verse 1, he says the following, Therefore, we must progress beyond the elementary instructions about Christ and move on to maturity, not laying this foundation again. Repentance from dead works and faith in God, teaching about ritual washings, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this is what we intend to do if God permits. For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, become partakers of the Holy Spirit, tasted the good word of God and the miracles of the coming age, and then have committed apostasy, to renew them again to repentance." since they are crucifying the Son of God for themselves all over again and holding him up to contempt. Okay, so this passage causes us to pause and reflect on these words and again pose the question, can true believers be cut off? Can they lose their salvation? It's clear from the first few verses that the writer is speaking to believers. And he says that something is impossible. Did you catch it? He says, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, become partakers of the Holy Spirit, tasted the good word of God and the miracles of the coming age, and then have committed apostasy to renew them again to repentance. It sure sounds like he's saying it's impossible for those who are true believers, but then committed apostasy to be renewed to repentance. And if you aren't sure what committing apostasy is, it basically means renouncing your faith. The writer goes on and uses an interesting metaphor. He compares believers to a field. If it rains and the field produces good fruit, God is blessing and he is glorified. But if the field yields thorns and thistles, the field is useless and should be burned. Now, do you know what happens to land that's burned? I live in the state of Florida, where wildfires are a natural occurrence and they actually stimulate a more healthy environment. A burned field or an overgrown dry Florida forest that catches on fire regenerates over time with healthier plants. The burned foliage returns to the soil, bringing needed nutrients back down to the earth and cleaning out the overgrowth to make way for new healthy plants. So one explanation is, again, not that the field is lost forever, but the rewards, the fruit, is not possible. So that is burned. New growth can occur. God can still be glorified. Just like the argument goes from the John passage about the branches burning, representing the works of the unbeliever burning, this warning in Hebrews could be very similar. Now, there's one more way to interpret this. There's a view that interprets these warnings as a means to salvation, not a loss of salvation. Proponents of this interpretation argue that salvation is both a right now event and a not yet event. We are saved, 
and promised eternal life, but we aren't living in our heavenly bodies. So think about this. Maybe this warning is not about what will happen to believers, but what will happen if believers were to commit apostasy. Thus, the warning is a means God uses to save people. It's a little confusing, I know. So here's a good illustration I read from Dr. Christopher Cohen. It might clear things up. He says, Consider this scenario. If a Christian you know and love were experiencing intense difficulties and confessing to you that he was giving up on Christ and renouncing his faith, what would you do? You wouldn't tell that person, Well, genuine Christians persevere to the end, so I'm confident you'll be all right. Instead, you would pray for them, offer to walk with them in their troubles, and urge them to keep trusting in the love and grace of Jesus, who is the only hope. This, you see, is exactly what the author of Hebrews is doing. Out of love for his readers, he is urging them not to turn away from Christ, but to keep trusting in his salvation, for there is no other refuge. To do otherwise is hopeless and eternally dangerous. There is salvation nowhere else. Okay, so let's recap a moment. Our verses in Ephesians tell us that at the time of hearing the gospel and believing, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is like a deposit for our heavenly inheritance. It sure sounds like we could be very confident that our eternal destiny is secure. There are other passages in the Gospel of John, the letter to Romans, the letter to the Corinthians that also support this. But not all people believe this. So to look at the reasons why, we examine a verse from John about unfruitful branches that do not remain in the vine being cut off, and a warning to the Hebrews that believers who renounce their faith could not be brought back from repentance. And we consider our own personal experiences, people in our lives or famous people who have professed Christ and then turned away. And so what are we left with? How do we discern what exactly is the right way to view our eternal security? I have three thoughts for us. First, profession does not mean possession. If I profess to be a millionaire, that doesn't mean I possess a million dollars. I could just be a crazy liar or a hopeful fool. By the way, I'm not professing that. I'm not a millionaire. In the same way, just because someone says they believe Jesus to be their savior doesn't mean they truly possess that faith. People say words all the time. Some they mean and some they don't. So yes, there are people professing but not possessing faith. And that could account for sometimes when we see people fall away. But I think what we've grappled with today goes beyond that. I don't think we can just say these passages are only talking about people who weren't, quote, true believers. Only God knows our hearts, and he is our one and only judge. So I'm not going to concern myself with whether or not someone is professing but not possessing. I'm going to leave that to God and just love them the best I can. Second, when I consider all of the scriptures together and look holistically at the teachings of Jesus, the overwhelming evidence is the argument that we can't lose our salvation. But at the same time, I want to continue to reinforce the idea that I don't understand all the ways of God. He has graciously given us wisdom and insight, but there's a gap, a really, really big gap between what he knows and what we know. So to the very best ability of my human brain's reasoning, I'm going to say that at this point in my life, I believe that true believers in Jesus cannot lose their salvation. 
but I'm wise enough now to say these words as well. I might be wrong. Maybe there's something else that God hasn't revealed through scripture or given me the insight to understand something that might change my mind on this belief. But for now, I think there's enough evidence in the teachings of Jesus and the inspired words of the Holy Spirit to be confident that we are indeed sealed at the time of salvation and our inheritance is guaranteed even though we aren't experiencing the final salvation from this fallen world. At least not yet. And the third thing I want to leave you with is another question. So what? No, that's, that's the question. So what? So what do we do with this doctrine? Let me explain. After saying this gigantic run-on sentence and finishing up with the idea of being sealed by the Holy Spirit, Paul says to his audience, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you when I remember you in my prayers. Paul has this wowzer of an opening that starts with, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and goes through these incredible blessings that we are chosen, predestined, adopted, redeemed, lavished, and that our salvation, we were sealed by the Holy Spirit to the praise of his glory. And for that reason, and because of their faith, he has not stopped praying for them. All of this leads to one thing. Paul prays for them and gives thanks for them. And that's the so what. Who in your life is a professing believer? Can you be praying for them? Can you be giving thanks for them? So often, and I'm guilty of this too, but so often prayer is something we use when we need help. But what about a time of praying for others? What about just thanking God for the believers in your life? I have some spiritual giants and mentors that God has graciously placed all along my life story. I need to be a Paul to them. I need to be thanking God for them and praying for them. I also have some people in my life that God has allowed me to teach and disciple and influence. I need to be praying for them and thanking God for them. What if we commit ourselves to praying for the strengthening of the faith of others so that they do not end up like the branches that don't remain in the vine or the believers who renounce their faith. Let's be like Paul. And for this reason, for the very fact that God has other believers in our lives, let's pray for one another. In our next episode, we'll be examining the specifics of the prayer that Paul prayed for them. But for now, Let's just commit to a renewed practice of prayer for our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Now, I may not have answered all your questions about eternal security, and my conclusions might be different from your conclusions. But even if we disagree, or you are not 100% satisfied with my explanations, if you're a believer, you and I, we belong to the same body, the body of Christ. And I'm thankful for you, and I am committing to pray for you. I hope God's word has inspired you to do the same for others. Thank you so very much for taking the time to listen to today's episode of the Bible for the Ordinary Life. My name is Alicia Parker. I hope you learned something and our time together encouraged your personal relationship with God. Be sure to check out my companion website at www.bibleforttheordinarylife.com or connect with me on Instagram at Bible for the Ordinary Life.